But if you've ever been to another culture with another language, what you experience may not be the words of understanding, but the joy of Christ in their presence. And uh, that is the reason uh, that it is a wonderful thing to do mission work. And I want to thank you for uh, uh, singing in a language that I didn't understand, except the joy of it all. And that's the way praise should be. Good morning. Today we are going to address the major reason for worship, the major reason for praise and giving thanks. The very first verse in Psalm 136 sets the stage for the next 26 verses. And it says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, let me give you a little uh, preview of what we're going to be doing. We are not going to be reading the whole psalm and then talking about it. We're going to take it in stanzas because there are four stanzas to this particular psalm. And we are going to read the first stanzas, and it's made to be done responsively. And so I'm not going to just simply read uh, the scriptures, I want you to do what we did in our responsive reading, and that is to say, for his steadfast love endures forever. It will be on the screen. Uh, you won't have to guess when to say it, but that's the way we're going to approach this psalm because it is a psalm of praise, and I want the whole sermon to be a context of four reasons or four dimensions of of praise, of why do we praise and why do we worship. And that is um, to uh, uh, the, the theme of this psalm. However, the first verse is problematic for some people. Now, if you are a dedicated Christ follower, that first verse is not a problem for you because you have tasted the goodness of God's grace. But in a world that hasn't tasted the goodness of God's grace, it is problematic to say God is good, especially if you've taken philosophy courses or if you get out there on the college campus or if you just talk to people who have had really tough times, they don't see the goodness of God. It's interesting when we hear people say, let's see if you can finish this, God is good all the time. Now, we have a tendency when we hear, or at least those who are skeptical hear people say that, God is good all the time, that somehow these people live in an ivory tower and that they have lived in isolation, that they have not experienced sickness or suffering or pain. You see, what's interesting to me is that I have heard this confession of God's goodness coming more from those who have suffered than those who live in ivory towers. When I think about my worship experience with my African-American brothers and sisters, they talk more of God's goodness than some of us Anglos. And yet many of them have had a harder time than we. So that raises the question, is God good when things don't turn out the way that you want them to be? Or is God good during famine as much as in feasting? Every one of us comes to this crossroads.
Normally, I weave the fabric of my message um, so that we come to the end with, oh, that's what it's about. I've had someone to describe my sermons as uh, a mix and match of things, and then you're either you tune out or you tune in. And if you turn out too soon, you don't get to see the connections. If you stay tuned, then finally you see the ribbon at the end or you see the mosaic put together. But I'm going to do something a little differently today because I do believe that some of us here and uh, others, they struggle with even the idea that God is good because life has been tough. And so I want to get to the heart of it, and then we're going to come back and we're going to look at the four stanzas and see how they fit into uh, the conclusion. I'm going to give you the conclusion up front, if you don't mind. Um, The answer to God's goodness is not philosophical, and it's not even theological. The answer to the issue of God's goodness is looking at the person of Jesus Christ. That's normally where I'd end, but I want to start there because it's important. Because he is our only personified picture of the character of God. Max Licato, and I love the way he writes, Put it this way. Please listen. He writes in good English so we can hear it. Jesus pressed his fingers into the sore of the leper. He felt the tears of the sinful woman as she wept. He inclined his ear to the cry of the hungry. He wept at the death of a friend. He stopped his work to tend to the needs of a grieving mother. Jesus doesn't recoil or run or retreat at the sight of pain. It's just the opposite. He didn't walk this earth in an insulated bubble. Or preach from an isolated, germ-free, pain-free island. He took his own medicine. He played by his own rules. Trivial irritations by a family. Well, he felt that. Cruel accusations from jealous men. He felt that. A seemingly senseless death. Think of the cross. He exacts nothing from us that he did not experience himself. And so Max Licato asks this question. Why? Why would Jesus be in the midst of our suffering and our pain and things not going well? And why did he take that upon himself? And it's because he is good. God owes us no more explanation than this. That is, 
Jesus. Besides, if he gave one, what makes us think that we would understand it anyway? You see, the problem might be less God's plan and more our limited perspective of things. Out of all creation, how much have you seen? Out of all the works of his hands, how much do you understand? Pastor Cato says, only a sliver. A doorway peep hole. Is it possible that some explanation for suffering exists of which we know nothing at all? So this first verse, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is forever. It's probably one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. The whole psalm is about thanksgiving. The Hebrew word for this loving kindness forever is hesed. It means not only loving kindness, but grace, unmerited favor, unconditional, steadfast, strong, enduring love for those who receive it. It's used over 240 times in the Old Testament, and it's nearly always linked to his mercy toward those of us who need it. There are key aspects of the original word. There's the aspect of strength, of steadfastness, and love. You see, God made a covenant with Israel. And if you remember that the occasion in which he made his covenant with Abraham, he had uh, Abraham to cut animals in half to make an aisle. And whoever made covenants, they would go together through those animal pieces. And basically saying, if you break this covenant, the same thing should happen to you. It was a blood covenant. Well, God put Abraham to sleep, and God walked through those pieces himself. You know why? Because he knew that Abraham was weak, and that Isaac would be weak, and that Jacob would be weak, and that his sons would be weak, and that uh, Neil would be weak. (laughs) So God made a covenant so that he would be true. Because his love endures forever. He is reliable. This psalm was sung as people would ascend to Jerusalem. It was sung in the temple, the highest point. It was sung on occasion before they would go into battle. And it was sung responsively. Spurgeon said that some of the best hymns are the simple hymns that people can remember. 
Well, this psalm contains nothing but praise. But way Spurgeon put it is this. The only ones who can fully enjoy it are those who have a grateful heart. So we're going to look at the first stanza. It's going to be verses 1 through 3. And I'm going to read the first part, and I would like for you to responsively read the second part. So here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. There are those who doubt the goodness of God, but they like Jesus. Some of the most skeptical people who write really like Jesus, but they hate the idea of a God who is on the throne. Which tells me that they don't have a clue who Jesus is. Or what Jesus said about himself in relationship to God. Jesus was referring to the God of the Old Testament, some of people who don't like to deal with the Old Testament. In Mark 10, Jesus said this, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up and knelt before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus replied. No one is good except God alone. Jesus is referring to the same God of the Old Testament who's the same God of the New Testament. If we already don't believe that he's good, then we can't believe anything that Jesus said. And therefore, Jesus can't be good. Unless we make him to be something that he's not. Jesus tells us that only God is good. Verse 2 says, give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. There is only one God. He, by definition, is unique. In fact, he defines uniqueness. We look at people and we go, wow, that was really unique. There's somebody in the world who can do the same thing. But there are no other gods. And what did Jesus say about this one God? That he is good. Jesus said, if you have seen the Father, you have seen me. All the rest of the idols are dumb. Verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords. He reigns and he rules and he is sovereign. Paul tells us in Romans that he is in sovereign control of all things and that he works together to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So his very being and his very character demonstrates his goodness. And his love for us. 
But then there's a second stanza, and that's about God's creation. This is verses 4 through 9. And again, would you repeat responsively the last part of each verse? To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. In his book, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life, Richard Dawkins says this about creation. He didn't like to use the word creation, but about the universe. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there, uh, if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but a pitiless indifference. Now, I don't know which world you want to live in, a world of pitiless indifference or a world in which there is purpose even if we don't understand it. Where did all the beauty come from? Is that pitiless indifference? And the order and the precision in the macro world and in the micro world. For those who don't believe in a creator but like Jesus, remember what John tells us about Jesus in John 1. In the beginning was the Word who is Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And then when you go down to verse 14, you read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not only is Jesus the very person of God, but he's the creative agent of all that is. Number three. Stanzas 3 is God's redemption, verses 10 through 22. Again, would you read responsively? To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. 
To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites. Og, king of Basham. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. God redeemed and brought Israel out of slavery and gave them a promised land because it was out of his everlasting love, his hesed, his grace, and his mercy toward those with whom he has made the covenant. And what do we see? In this third stanza, if not the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Do we not see the same type of redemption? In that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. God's grace was not only to deliver the children of Israel from slavery, which was the exodus, but he gave them a home. Do you know what Jesus did for all those who would come to him? He bought us back from our sin. He paid our sin debt. He delivered us from the power and the slavery of our own natures. And those wars continue to battle on all the time. But he not only forgave us of our sin, he not only paid the penalty of our sin, but he gave us a home. You see, in Psalm 136, we see Christ, the very nature of God. In Psalm 136, we see that he is the agent of all creation. And in Psalm 136, what we see God do for his covenant people, Jesus Christ does for all of us who will come to him and we become his covenant people. God so loved the world, and this is the way he loved us. He gave us his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. But then the last stanza is about his providence, his persistent love for those who are his. In verses 23 through 27, again read responsively. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. He rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. I know there are times that we think more highly of ourselves than we should. (laughs) But God cares for us. In our weaknesses. 
in our lowest state. I want you to think about this past year. Here we are in November. We're just weeks away from the close of this year that has gone so quickly. And it's been a privilege to know so many of you. As you go through the suffering. I told you last week that many of you have much more of an adult faith than I do because our faith grows and matures through the hard times. And I've seen you go through the hard times. And I've seen your faith get stronger and stronger and your walk more secure. It's because you can praise Him Because he remembered you in your lowest state when you were at your weakest, in your frailty. And he was tender toward you. He walks with his people through the wilderness. He rescues us from our foes. Now, I know we have a tendency to think, all right, let me name a few of my foes, God, and let me see if you're going to deliver me from them. Can I remind you what the New Testament tells us about who our enemies are? Ephesians 3, put on the whole armor of God so that you can make your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, take on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, that is, when the battles come, you will be able to stand your ground and having done everything, stand. We all have daily battles, and some of those battles are worse than others. And some of you may be going through those today. But you are His, and it's perfectly natural to sometimes feel like Tevye of uh, Fiddle on the Roof. I know, I know that we are your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? I get that. You see, we seem to make more progress in our spiritual growth as we stumble and fall. Because he helps us up and we're able to keep going and then we'll stumble and fall and then he helps us up and the more he helps us up, the more we rely on him. The love of God never wavers toward us. Jesus Christ is the perfect, sufficient Savior. Not only for your sins and my sins, but for our frailties and our weaknesses. 
He cares for us and he provides for us. Many of us are familiar with the book Pilgrim's Progress. We had a game board at our house as our kids were growing up called Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. Spurgeon once said of Bunyan, prick that man anywhere in his blood runs Bibeline. (laughs) And what he meant was this, that Bunyan was so full of the Bible that it ran in his veins and that he was so familiar with the Old Testament stories that Psalm 136 alludes to that as predicaments came up in his life, he was able to use those stories as illustrations of strength of God's favor. And then Spurgeon said this, if you are not familiar with these stories so that they shape your world, you will not apply them when you need to. And rather than thanking God for his everlasting love, you will fall into grumbling like the rest of the world. And all these are pictures of God's grace through Jesus Christ. We've seen Christ as the very character and personification of who God is. We've seen Christ as the creator. We know Christ is our redeemer, and he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we praise him for who he is, and we praise him for his creation, and we praise him for his redemption, and we praise him for his watchful eye and his provisions and his protection. And only those who have experienced his grace can do that. Otherwise, we remain skeptical. And I understand that. Because until you have tasted the beauty of Christ and the sweetness of his forgiveness, this world looks doomed. You know, we could go on and on. Right now, we just have uh, four... Stanzas, we could create 10,000 stanzas to give him praise. But here's the last thought. Of all those 10,000 reasons to worship, they all can be put under the umbrella of one explicable truth. And that is that his enduring love and grace for his people is sure. And my prayer for you as a Christ follower is that this psalm would be of encouragement to you. And for those who may not be Christ followers, I want you to know that you do have options. You can live in a pitiless, indifferent world. Or you can see the beauty of Christ. And I pray that you would see the beauty of Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection. For he has overcome the last foe that you will ever experience. And that is death. For his unending love endures.
forever. Would you stand and would you sing with this 10,000 reasons?